Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of A Mic on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. Before this week's interview, I'd like to thank my latest subscriber on Patreon, Christian Ernie, for his support and all of my other Patreon subscribers. Subscribing is now even easier, with the option of paying a one-off annual fee, which rewards you with a 10% discount over the year. Details of how to join the Supporters Club and gain access to even more content about the world of conductors and conducting are in the show notes attached to this episode. Today, I conduct a conversation with a conductor who hails from Northern Ireland. He is conducted in the UK and further afield on the concert platform, but is probably better known for his work conducting ballet. He's worked with ballet companies all across the globe, but is probably best known for being the principal conductor of Birmingham Royal Ballet a position he has held for the last 24 years. It's a great pleasure to welcome Paul Murphy. Paul, it's lovely to see you. It's been a long time. Um, I think we bumped into each other outside the Henrywood Hall in London, but before that we shared a stage and an orchestra. We shared the CBSO. You conducted some ballet numbers and I conducted some other numbers. How are you? I'm fine, thanks, and it's great to see you um, after all this shall we say, chaos that we've been living under the last year, year and a bit. Um, you're looking well. I'm looking forward to having a chat. And me. Um, yeah, chaos is, is definitely one way of putting it, um, or, or even inactivity um, is another way of putting it. But, but yes, it's definitely been uh, a torturous time for not only conductors, but, you know, freelance musicians, orchestra musicians, everybody in the arts. Um, and we're sort of tiptoeing our way back in, aren't we? Yes, we are. I mean, I my main uh, work is, you probably know, is with the Birmingham Royal Ballet. I started conducting with them in 1992. Can you believe it? All those years ago. <laughs> and um, obviously, you know, the company hasn't done a great deal um, since the lockdown began. But we have actually managed a world premiere by <laughs> last October. Carlos Acosta, our new artistic director, was appointed just before this all happened. So it was a very, very difficult gig for him to start. But one of the first things he initiated was, um, was a new piece. So we actually did um, a new ballet set to John Adams' Shaker Loops, which we did in the original version for seven players. Mm. Um, Rep Theatre in Birmingham, which has become our temporary home. Um, uh, so much so that we actually, and in, in the summer, just gone, we did Prokofiev Cinderella in there, but obviously the pit is tiny. So the orchestra were three floors up in a studio and we piped the sound through, but we played an arrangement, uh, a very, very good arrangement by Daryl Griffith made back in the, um, the 90s, um, published by Boozies. So it's amazing what is possible. I mean, the mm. company had carried on, we've kept going. Um, the orchestra has been amazing, um, very flexible, very willing to, to, to do anything really just to keep going. And we've made COVID backups as well of all the rep that we were, that we were doing just in case the entire group were to go down. Fortunately, none of those uh, were used. Um, so again, that was, that was all a learning experience for all of us. And it's been, well, all I can say, a voyage of discovery and we're hoping against hope uh, I we all are, that we can go back to some sort of normality now in the autumn. Mm. Well, talking about voyages of discovery, and my listeners know that I always do my homework and I look people up on Wikipedia or on biographies on websites or whatever else. 
the most I've got for you is that you were born in Northern Ireland, I don't know where, and you studied at the Royal Academy of Music, uh, conducting viola and singing. So what came first? Do you come from a musical family? Were your parents musical? How did it all start for you? Actually, I don't come from a musical family. Um, as you say, I was born in Northern Ireland uh, quite a while ago <laughs> and uh, grew up grew up in the height of the Troubles, mm. um, which wasn't an easy time for all of us who were living there. But ironically, there was a great deal of music going on. Um, I started as a solo singer, um, festivals mainly, festivals um, all around the North of Ireland and in the Republic. And uh, I didn't actually turn my hand to instrumental music until quite late. I was mm. 10 when I started playing the violin, just through the county um, music services. Um, and then I changed to viola when I was 14 for a very common reason in that the local youth orchestra were short of viola players, <laughs> as ever. <laughs> so I was one of a few who were seconded. And within a couple of years, I became principal viola of that orchestra, the Western Counties Youth Orchestra, uh, which encompassed three counties uh, in the north of Ireland. And it was a terrific time because in the midst of this terrible uh, violence and uh, oppression that we had. We found this great solace in, in music. Uh, I suppose in some ways it was an escape, but it was also a great source of pleasure. And for all of us who were involved, of course, what we realized very early on was the sort of, uh, the, the fact that Catholics and Protestants could actually mix very, very easily indeed. Mm. And through the common language of music, we never had any trouble whatsoever and uh, it brought the whole thing into a very different focus, certainly for me. Uh, and um, so, yeah, so I started, I started playing the, the viola, I suppose, was my first serious um, inkling as to, as to what might happen in the future. And uh, I, um, at 18, I, I went to the, to the Royal Academy of Music to study viola and singing. But then whilst there, I caught the conducting bug. <laughs> well, a couple of things ring true there. I've conducted the Ulster Youth Orchestra uh, three or four years ago, and what a lovely bunch of people they were and are. Um, I've seen some of them already gone on to better things, and 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 it was a wonderful course. And as you said, everything was that that sort of common bond through music. Um, I even mentioned the troubles and and Catholic Protestants to the people who are running it and said, yeah, we've never had any problems here. And uh, it just we just speak to each other through music. The other thing that spoke to me was, you know, I was about the same age when somebody suggested to me I played the viola. I did it to get into my county youth orchestra. And the minute I got in, I turned around and said, actually, I'm a violinist. Can I go over to violin? And after one course, they let me. So I did take up the viola, but I never took it any further. Um, you've just mentioned catching the conducting bug. Hawken Hardenberger, the trumpet player, called it drinking, conducting poison. Um, uh, Pete Hill, the timpanist, the long-term timpanist with the CBSO, called it stickitis. We all get it sometime and somehow. Um, how did you get it? Was it just playing in orchestra at the academy or was it bubbling away from a lot, a lot further before than that? Yes, it had been bubbling away, I think, since I was 15, 16. Uh, I think I'd always, you know, had a, a very strong inkling to have a go. But actually, when I, the course I did at the RAM was the was a sort of loose degree called the Graduate of the Royal Schools of Music, and um, 
part of the course was a, a, a sort of an element of conducting. So I did it as a, I suppose, for lack of a better description, a second study mm. uh, or an additional second study. And um, I remember the first thing I conducted was the prelude to Hansel and Gretel and Humperdinck, a beautiful introduction to the opera. And I got a very favorable reaction from my peers, which I always feel is the best, um, you know, mm. the best encouragement or the best criticism we can have is from our own age group. And um, subsequently, I auditioned for the postgraduate course. Uh, and, but at that stage, I had already made the decision that I wasn't going to play the viola uh, professionally, that I really wanted to pursue um, a career as a conductor. So I gained a place and I stayed on for a further three years, uh, studying with Colin Metters, George Hurst, John Carew. And then latterly, Colin Davis also came in. He mm. was International Chair of Conducting Studies, so he gave us few masterclass days, uh, which was a tremendous experience as well. Also, we did an awful lot of things like choral work and um, we had opera extracts and lots of contemporary music. And there was, it was a fantastic three years on that course. I absolutely loved it. And I think, you know, from what I hear, the students now don't have anywhere near the opportunities we had because we had regular access to orchestras mm. back in those days. Um, and I was a contemporary of the likes of Mark Wigglesworth, who was a year below me. And um, it, was a, it was a hotbed of, of, I suppose, competition, but also tremendous um, enthusiasm and excitement on the course. And uh, we were all friends. And um, it, was, it was a great time, a mm. really a energized great time and a great time to be a young conductor. Mm. Colin Metters' name has come up on here a lot because quite a few of the people I've interviewed have gone through the Royal Academy, as has George Hurst. Uh, some people going to Canford, but again, the Royal Academy, and Colin Davis. I'm not sure John Carew's name has come up that often. Possibly most famous for being Simon Rattle's teacher, um, uh, especially when he was in his early days at the Bournemouth. What was John's teaching style like compared to the other two, to do, um, compared to or the other three, Colin, George and Colin, Sir Colin? Well, it couldn't be more different, mm. uh, really. I, re I remember distinctly the very first lesson we had, which was he asked us to prepare a first movement of a Haydn symphony. I think it was the Lamentazioni. And um, we there were three of us on my year and uh, we were asked to go to his house so in which was very nice in, in Islington and so on and we had no idea what to expect and basically we got in there and he asked us to open the score and begin at bar one and tell him what the harmony was so um, we there was a, a sort of protracted silence um, we kind of looked at each other but basically what he wanted to, to do was to analyze every single chord Mm. of the first moon of the symphony, um, which was an experience none of us were quite expecting. Um, the the Oxbridge graduates were a little better at that sort of thing than, than us mere uh, conservatoire people. But um, basically, at, when we actually got to, very painfully got to the end, he, he really wanted to explore the music through its harmonic progression. Mm. And discuss how that might influence the shaping and the pacing, um, I suppose, uh, from a conductor's perspective and also from an interpretive point of view. Mm. Very much in the, in the mold of, say, a Furtwängler, 
mm. you know, where the music is ebbing and flowing a lot based on harmonic tension. It was a very, very different approach. Uh, when he taught us with the orchestra, he wasn't remotely interested in conducting technique whatsoever. It was all about how you would communicate the music, how you would shape the music, how you would phrase the music. He wasn't an advocate in any way for, um, you know, ease of gesture and that mm. sort of focusing on how you might translate something through your baton and all the rest of it. It was purely based on, 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 you know, the sort of getting across the shape and the flow of the music, which is kind of ironic, really, for someone who spent a great deal of his time conducting contemporary music. <laughs> That's true. Fired the Fires of London and groups like that, all those premieres he did of Maxwell Davis and and so on. He was a very, I mean, he's still alive, mm. as far as I understand. He a very interesting guy. I, I, I liked him. Eventually, I liked him a lot. It took me a while to understand him. Um, and I think the sort of yin and yang of him and Colin was, was, was great actually, because it couldn't be more different. Yeah. You know, Colin um, was very technically based. It was very based on helping you through your career, through ease of gesture and so on and so on. Um, but uh, yeah, so it was, uh, it, was, it was fascinating. He talked a lot about Simon, obviously. Mm. And Simon apparently rates uh, the help he had from John enormously, and I'm not surprised. I, I, I don't think I will ever forget him. And mm. certainly, when I'm looking at scores now, I, I often come back to um, his mindset and, and, you know, that importance of looking at the harmony of the piece, particularly music from the 19th century and earlier. I played for him. Um, when we did Gruppen, Stockhausen's Gruppen at the CBSO. Wow. Was, and for those who don't know, it's written for three orchestras. And it was, it was um, Simon Rattle was conducting Orchestra One, Daniel Harding, his pupil, was conducting Orchestra Two, and John Carew, Simon's teacher, was conducting Orchestra Three, and I was in Orchestra Three. Um, I remember it very, very, very well. And also, I met him very recently backstage, so he's very much alive, I think, um, uh, backstage at the Royal Festival Hall, and I just conducted a, a contemporary piece uh, with some LPO young players and members of the LPO. And he was charming, absolutely charming, lovely to speak to. Um, yeah, interesting that, that they were ham and egging it between them, uh, to use a golfing term, that um, John Carew was in, very much in the Swarovski school. Uh, and it sounds like Colin Metters were very much more in the sort of Moosin school, uh, everything to do with gesture. So you graduate uh, and the big wide world is, is upon you. Were you getting some work before you graduated uh, or did you just suddenly appear out there and you're a, a conductor ready to go? Well, I, I sort of made my own work. Um, I, I used to, you know, conduct a few concerts of with contemporaries that I organised myself. Yeah. Uh, um, I, I basically, I had some youth orchestras and um, of course, inevitably some amateur orchestras and very fortunately, I had an extremely good amateur orchestra based in Nottingham, the Nottingham Philharmonic Orchestra, which I started conducting in 1990 and they were absolutely terrific. Uh, and they're still, they still are. Um, they had their 40th anniversary a few years back and I was invited by their now music director, Mark Heron, to share a concert with him 
um, to celebrate the 40 years and um, they're, they're better there than they were even mm. then. And it's, that, was a, that was a really terrifically positive experience because I was able to do big repertoire um, with not a great deal of rehearsal, I have to say. We normally did five plus um, a Friday night and then one on the day, so seven in total. Um, and they, they were just, it was just such a wonderful time. Um, but obviously, you know, we're out in the big world, well, we're trying to make it as a conductor and uh, it's all very well doing these things, diverse and interesting as they are, but there isn't a great deal of money coming in. So mm. that was a challenge. And um, quite, I mean, I tell this story a lot uh, and it is, it is true, but I, I ended up um, in my current role completely and utterly by accident. <laughs> Um, I was never intending to go down the route of being a ballet specialist. I hadn't even considered uh, ballet as a possible career. Um, I knew absolutely nothing about ballet whatsoever, but purely by chance, um, I had a phone call from an orchestral player who's still in the Royal Ballet Symphonia saying that uh, we're looking, we're desperately looking for another conductor. Would you consider um, applying? Mm. And I, my answer was, well, yeah, of course, because I, you know, I, I'd love to have an opportunity to work regularly with a professional orchestra, but I don't know anything about it. And um, I applied for lack of a better description in those days, which was in pen and paper and a photograph. Mm -hmm. um, this was in 1991, 90, actually, 91. Um, and eventually was invited to, with two other colleagues, um, to observe for three months all aspects of how a ballet company works, how dancers operate, how the music staff work. And at the end of the three months, all three of us had to do the same thing, two pieces in a triple bill in three different venues. Mm. And we became you know, great friends over three months, as you can imagine, spending every day together. Uh, and then at the end of the three months, I was called up and asked to come back to do some more another triple bill they said this time you can rehearse the orchestra rather <laughs> than jumping in um and i went back to find the other two were no longer there it was just me um and then i did a few performances of this triple bill and barry wordsworth rang me up and offered me a contract that was in um yeah that was in 1992 and um i started working as then a staff conductor for Birmingham Royal Ballet in September 92. And I had five years of, I don't mind saying it, utter hell. <laughs> because I really realized I didn't know anything at all about um, classical ballet and how it really operates from the, from the perspective of the conductor. Um, so it was very tough. And of course, being last in uh, and the youngest, I was really not given an awful lot of orchestral time. Most of the things I did, I did with no rehearsal, mm. um, including some massive war horse pieces like The Sleeping Beauty, um, Romeo and Juliet, Prokofiev, et cetera, et cetera. But, um, you know, like anyone, if you're, if you're canny and you're patient, you eventually, the penny is going to drop, you're going to learn. And uh, five years later, I was offered the contract of principal conductor um, and um, I'm still there. But um, hand in glove, I, I, I freelanced as well. Mm. Uh, BBC recordings, um, Radio 3, uh, concerts and so on. 
Um, so it was an exciting period, the 90s for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I made a very much a period of learning. Um, you know, I was 28 when I started, which is still by any degree young for a conductor. And the orchestra were, some of the orchestra were around my age, but there were a lot of old timers who, uh, who knew the repertoire very well. We like to chew up conductors for breakfast. <laughs> and, <laughs> um, I'm not saying that you were one of those, Mike, when you were a player. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not sure I ever played for you, Paul. So I think I'm, I'm uh, but I, I'm not sure I ever chewed them up. But, uh, you know, I was once told by Ed Gardner, who's now become a firm friend. Uh, I said to him about, he said, you know, how did you cope when people knew that you were assistant conductor and playing in the section? I said, well, I just sat there and put my poker face on if I didn't think they were very good. And he just <laughs> laughed at me and said, Mike, your poker face is rubbish because I knew when you thought I was crap. <laughs> um, but no, yeah, I, I think, I think those, uh, you know, I actually joined the CBSA in September, 1992 as a member. So, you know, it's exactly the same time in the same city. And I think that there were players there who were happily chewing up conductors in the CBSO, but I, now the world's a different place. Um, you know, very rarely do you ever get somebody who wants to pick a fight with you. Uh, I have had it, actually, in the last two years in an auction in this country, but very, very, very rarely. Um, hmm. The other thing I was going to ask you, um, somebody once said to me, actually, it was an agent I was talking to, not my own agents, another agent I happened to be talking to a while ago, that I should never, I should stop conducting amateurs and youth orchestras uh, because it'll do do you no good and it'll be no good for your technique. Now you just said you did what I did at the beginning, start conducting amateurs and youth orchestras. I still conduct the CBSA youth orchestra because I have a loyalty to it. Um, I was I've been around since the very beginning of it, and I I feel it's a, a real you know passion of mine. And I still conduct two amateur orchestras, one through loyalty and one because they're the best I've ever, ever conducted. Um, do you still do any of those? Do you think it was a detriment to, to start doing that, um, start by going down that road? And what do you think to that argument that, you know, once you've started conducting professionally, you should move away from youth orchestras and amateurs? Um, I, I don't see a problem at all with carrying on conducting youth orchestras and amateurs. And I think they will benefit a great deal from from us as professionals and also we we are always learning mm. from all from every musician be they i mean there are some amateurs out there who are absolutely phenomenal mm. um and similarly with youth orchestras there's a great deal to be to be gained by working with young people um so no I, i'm a great advocate in 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 carrying on with that i mean i don't do a great deal these days because i there's an my job as principal conductor is is becoming increasingly embedded in admin <laughs> as well as is actually doing the lion's share of the show. So I find that I can actually dedicate enough time to the regular weekly rehearsals to do, um, to do as very much of it. But I, I have colleagues who, who still do, who regularly conduct amateur orchestras and amateur core societies and things. And I think it's, it's, there's no, certainly no shame in it. And, if, and, and why not? Mm. You know, we learn from them. We should give to them, and I think it's a, it's a, I very much uh, will advocate that continuing. I don't have an issue with that at all. And I think okay. I mean, there, there, there I, I suppose that the orchestra is very poor. Um, yeah. You want once the technique is likely to suffer from over directing just to get them from A to B, but if it's a good ensemble, then then absolutely, mm. please, carry on, all of us. I think we should. Um. 
I'm going to ask you to relive your hell, if you don't mind. <laughs> uh, because as somebody who's never... I've conducted one ballet concert once. Um, uh, it was double frightening because um, it was with 10 different ballet schools from the, the Channel Islands and two or three principals from the Royal Ballet uh, who were due to be there for the rehearsal. And then they got... Uh, Jersey became fogbound and they arrived just in time for the concert. So I was sight conducting them if that makes sense the dancers in the concert uh it was thrilling and exhilarating but frankly i was just winging it there were moments i thought i'd well i'll follow their feet and then there were other moments i thought i'll follow their hands um what what were the major things you learned in those first five years as you've just said of hell before that you became principal conductor can you can you just put your finger on some things that you picked up that was that actually surprised you or shocked you Yes, uh, I can. And the, the, the hardest thing, um, well, I'm not going to mention names mm. because I don't think it's fair, but I remember watching very early on two conductors do the same piece. Mm. It was actually going back to the war horses, going back to Sleeping Beauty. One of whom, this was in America, one of whom made the orchestra, who were fairly average, I would say, sound extremely good with a beautiful sheen on the sound and um, I remember being full of admiration for this particular conductor but this is watching um, an international company it was actually the Royal Ballet and thinking well you know they look they look good they look good they 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 don't look um, particularly amazing I was expecting the Royal Ballet to be jaw-dropping <laughs> and then um, a few evenings later uh, I saw the same ballet conducted by um, a pretty, shall we say, uh, functional conductor, mm. but uh, um, a ballet specialist, someone who knew the job from the inside as a repetiteur, uh, was a perfectly adequate conductor, clear and so on. And suddenly I was watching a world-class outfit. Mm. It, it, was, it, was, it was almost jaw-dropping in the virtuosity simply because he knew how far to push. Mm. This, this is often the issue uh, with ballet. Tempo is a very big deal for dancers, but the tempo fluctuations are absolutely microscopic. Mm. So if a dancer were to say to you as the conductor, oh, look, Mike, I need it faster because I'm short and I, so on, and I like to move. So as a musician, you would think, okay, great, game on, off we go. But in <laughs> fact, it may just be the feel. Mm. It's a feel that, you know, sometimes in, in chamber music, when you've been playing quartets, there may be a sort of finale of a Haydn symphony and one night you've just let it go a bit, take your foot off the gas. And other evenings you just sit back in it. And it, it's, it's very, very subtle. It's very, it's, it's incredibly um, nuanced. Mm. Um, so what, what I learned more than anything or what I didn't what I couldn't do was was not to follow mm. this, you're, they're in front of you you have the peripheral vision very often they're off the beat uh -huh. and I'm not criticizing them per se for this uh, but very often particularly in the solos they like to play around with it mm. uh, if when you know which step should be on which beat, it's it's very difficult sometimes not to go with it. But then what happens is it's the blind leading the blind and inevitably the music slows down. Mm. So, I mean, I often say this to students, the, the, the 
the parity or, or the similarity, I suppose, with opera is sometimes uncanny. It's in some ways it's identical. So we are accompanying, but essentially we're directing. Mm. So we've got to lead the music always, even within the confines of choreographic restrictions, we still have to lead. It's like being a dance partner yourself. Mm. You have to take the lead. Uh, often your instincts are, are, are suppressed because you really want to, you know yourself as a musician that that should really be at that tempo. That you know that you can't, you have to be held down a little bit or sometimes a lot, but within that, you still have to lead, you still have to make music because the orchestra, remember, can't see a thing. Mm. And all they have is you. Mm. I mean, they have their own skill, they're listening and so on, and they can pretty much knock out the standard classics in some, to some degree without you. But to bring the experience alive, that's the conductor. So actually learning to be a conductor whilst um, accommodating the dancers mm. was the hardest thing to do. And it took me at least, well, yeah, certainly all of the five years. Is there an element of, uh, well, there, there, it's a two-part question and it's, they're linked. Is there an element of, you know, almost like a jazz band, you lay down the the track underneath and the singer, i.e. in your case, the dancer, will meander through and not necessarily hit bar lines, but there are moments that, that you think, well, they are going to land that step or that jump or that, because they can, you know, I've just been, I'm laying it down for them. And also, much like opera singers, to use your other analogy, are there dancers you know personally? I can just I can push them because I know it'll make them better, or I better not push that person because they'll get all devery about it. Um, you know, I'm sure it's dealing with the individual, which is an opera and and soloists in any form as conductor. That's the most important one of the most important things we do. Is that very much the case that, you know, they are meandering around something you've laid down for them and you can individually push or, or mollycoddle dancers at certain stages? That's absolutely right. You couldn't have been uh, more accurate, actually, with that. And the more you know the individual dancers, the better. Yeah. Uh, I mean, body shapes do come into play. In, in the main, the taller dancers tend to be slower mm. and the shorter dancers tend to be faster but that is not always the case some very tall dancers can move like the wind and amazingly enough some short dancers are very slow dancers so but the more time like singers you spend in the studio uh with the repetiteur the better for all mm. concerned because you know this there should be an element of trust a really a deep trust it's how it's how theater works unlike the concert hall sometimes of course you know, even then when the symphony concert has got to be the same, the players have got to trust you. Mm. There isn't that, you know, equitable trust. It's not, it's not going to work. So it's the same with the, with the ballet company. They have to know that what you're giving them in the studio is basically what you're going to give them in the performance and not suddenly go AWOL. Mm. Um, so it, and, and the, the rehearsal process is very similar to opera, except at the early stages, we tend not to conduct. Um, if it's a revival of, say, a standard like Swan Lake, the conductor would not normally come in until the latter stages because we've done it a lot. Mm. But with something new, like a new three act or a new one act, uh, 
we would tend to observe initially to find out what the choreographer is up to or talk to them off camera, as it were, mm. uh, and uh, work with the composer and the pianist and so on. But um, and then at the latter stages, we'll actually conduct with the repetiteur, unless it's something particularly electronic, uh, which they're going to use the track for, which is becoming sadly increasingly the case these days with new scores they tend to come in choreographers tend to come in with a track and it stays a track in the in the rehearsal studio until the orchestral rehearsals which makes it very difficult for the conductor because you basically in some ways got to replicate the tempi almost exactly mm. yeah so spending time with the individuals spending time in the studio getting to know your subject mm. uh, before you take it to the orchestra and then Telling the orchestra the permutations as well, they're always very grateful for that, you know, because that there may be one person that is just just going to be outside of the box on one or two particular shows. Um, be aware, be ready. Mm. But I have to say, you know, the Royal Ballet Sinfonia are ballet experts. <laughs> they can turn on a penny very, very quickly indeed, and they respond instantaneously. And the company is very fortunate indeed to have them. So you, one of my questions, you, you've pretty much answered there. It's almost like you've read my notebook, Paul. Um, the, <laughs> the one that's missing so far, the question that's missing so far is, you know, I, I wanted to know how soon into production you would go to rehearsal. So it depends on whether it's a war horse or a brand new piece. But how much time do you and the orchestra have together before you put the dancers in with the orchestra for rehearsal's sake? Do you, you know, I suppose with a war horse, you only need a sort of refreshing three or six hours. But with... Uh, a brand new piece how much time would you do before the dancers come in well if it's if it's a brand new um full length we could have as much as a week's rehearsal mm. uh, um you know three or four days mm. Mm. so that's kind of unusual um for a for a new one actor probably three or four three hour rehearsals mm. and then two sometimes three stage rehearsals uh before we go on it's really dependent on what the rep is. But yeah, you're quite right. If it's a revival of a war horse, we probably have two reading rehearsals mm. and then two stage rehearsals. Yeah. Um, and then of course, in in with those, you know, standards as it were, we the because the orchestra is not full time, they're on a 35-week guarantee, we don't always have the same players. Um, so a, a run of the nutcracker, for example, there have been many freelancers who will come and go. Mm. Um, mostly that's not a problem because the standard of British orchestral playing is phenomenal, as you mm. know, and most people who sit in there um, know the piece extremely well. Occasionally we get issues of someone who hasn't played it for five years and there might be the odd glitch, but generally it's not a problem, but mm. it keeps us fresh, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I will bring up, I've told this story before, but it was, it was you know, 50 episodes ago, you're talking about tempo and also this modern thing about making a tape and, and dancers learning to a tape or a pre-recorded thing, which means mm. that the tempo never moves and has, has no freedom or whatever. When I did that concert in Jersey, I, was, I asked for the exact tapes that the ballet schools had been dancing to um, mm. so that I knew what tempo they'd been practising at. And I did the, the dance of the signets with the one ballet school and off I started. I'm, I'd written in my metronome mark at the top of the score. And this, this voice came from the, uh, the auditorium who was their teacher. Maestro, maestro, it's way too fast, way too fast. So I, I stopped, turned around and said, 
uh, I'm going off the recording you sent me, yeah, which was by, I can't remember who it was by. Yes, that's exactly the one. So I got my phone out of my pocket, and on it I have an app where I tap the screen, and it'll give you the metronome marking I was going at. I said, and this was the speed I was going just now, yes? And she said, yes, it's way too fast. I turned the screen round, and it was two metronome marks slower than the recording that she'd sent. <laughs> uh, it was one it, one of those days I was so glad my phone was in my pocket, and I could turn around and say, look, you know, that's the tempo you asked me to go at, and I'm actually two metronome marks slower, which... For those who don't use metronomes who listen to this podcast, two metronome marks is pretty indistinguishable, really. You know, if you go from 120 beats per minute to 118 beats per minute, it's barely distinguishable. Um, but yeah, I, I can imagine working to those those tapes, those pre-recorded um, tracks, uh, makes your life rather more difficult. Um, in at the end of the process, I suppose you know you, there will be some leeway because dancers get tired. They're, 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 one night they may well feeling be feeling under the weather. They can't always run at ten seconds flat. They might run ten point five in one day. You know. Yeah, that's right. It it it, it can be very challenging sometimes. In fact, I'm <clears throat> hopefully it's going to come off. I, I'm hoping to do a world premiere in Sarasota, in Florida, in March of a new score by Matthew Heinsohn. Australian composer to um, a, a, an updated version of Shakespeare's A Comedy of Errors. Mm. And um, it's very much like that. In fact, it's it's not going to be rehearsed to piano at all, but only to the track and it's a full length. Um, so I think I'll have a couple of days in the studio with the choreographer and the track mm. and then four reading rehearsals and two stage rehearsals. And it's those two stage rehearsals, which will be the first time the dancers will have it live. Mm. And it, it's already promising to be an exciting but a very tricky score. So um, it's uh, you need you need a musical choreographer. This is very much also again another parallel with opera, where conductors and, and directors clash if they're not singing from the same um, song sheet or hymn sheet, whatever you like. And if the choreographer is innately musical, there's a degree of compromise which will always come into play. Mm. And this this can make it a, a, a really wonderful, positive experience. If there's a, um, a very fussy, nervy, not terribly musical, but very visual choreographer, then these, it, can be, it can be very difficult. I mean, I have to say, fortunately, in my career, which is nearly 30 years now in ballet, I've rarely had to work with such choreographers. I have done, but um, not often. Mm. Uh, so uh, I've always been blessed with having the other sort. So there is a degree of compromise always to be found. And again, going back to individual dancers, my, my rule of um, thumb is always, I will always say yes until a certain point when I know the music won't work. Mm. And you have to say in the nicest possible way, I'm sorry, I can do this, but this is as far as I can go. Then you have to deal with that because it just won't work musically to slow down here for example or to pull that out there for example or to really really speed up in that sort of four notes in the yeah. middle of your phrase you know and very often that will be asked to you in a very very nice way so it's it's rarely competitive at all the, the, as you said earlier about the diva orchestral players disappearing well diva dancers are also disappearing mm. uh, there is a younger generation who who are quite feisty but the days of the really difficult and again i'm not going to mention names but i have worked with some extraordinarily difficult prima donna type characters 
and um, you know, who were never grateful and always very critical, and so on and so on. In the same way as we used to, you know, there are opera divas throughout the years. Yeah. So, yeah. but the working environment is much more convivial these days, and we are very much more of a team. And you have to be, and in a way, it has to function that way mm. to really be successful. I'm going to use a question about ballet music, but linked to the concert stage to ask you about your concert work. If you conduct some ballet music in concert, do you change the tempo away from perceived ballet tempos because of the dancers have to dance it at a specific speed to something else uh, ever? Um, and when you go and conduct on the concert stage, do you find it freeing or how do you find that, you know, because I'm assuming you must spend well over 50% of your time in the pit or in, um, in ballet scenarios, but when you go and conduct an orchestra on a concert stage, do you find it freeing? And, and again, as I said about the, that ballet, those ballet tempos, I've conducted things and certain people said, we never conducted them a ballet, they're never, because it would never go that fast. Um, but how do you, how do you do it? Well, again, the, the the easy answer is it's really dependent on what the piece is. Yes. I mean, I, I had a direct experience with this <clears throat> two years ago in Osaka in Japan, where I did a concert of ballet music, uh, beginning with Mother Goose Suite, then Firebird 1919, Interval, followed by Act Two of Nutcracker. Hmm. Now, um, the 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 Ravel I've never done as a ballet. I've only ever done it in concert. Uh, but the Firebird I've done a lot. Hmm. Uh, and there aren't many constrictions on the tempi, I have to say, in that piece. But I treated it completely as any other con conductor would uh, and went for maximum drama yeah. uh, in, in, you know, in things like the Infernal Dance and so yeah. on. Yeah. That is really held in the ballet because it's a great big number for everyone. Mm. with lots of Cossack-type guys and so on. And if you drive it too far, they're literally going to fall over, <laughs> you know, dominoes. So it, it's, it's, it, it can still be exciting, but it's held. So, yeah, by all means, I, 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 I ignored any preconceptions. Mm. Now, there, there's a sort of irony here. Um, in, in the second half, I, I made the decision also to ignore the ballet traditions for, for the Nutcracker. But because there was no applause between the numbers, it actually felt a bit flat. Mm. There was a degree, of course, sort of personal satisfaction in being able to take the Grand Pas de more like Tchaikovsky's uh, metronome mark, uh, rather than a great the funereal tempo that we do take it at. Mm. But um, th this the thing, the, the slower tempi don't have to be a negative experience. No. It took me an awful long time to realize this. You know, the, at the beginning, I was very, I suppose, angry with the fact that we had to do this. But in fact, when you factor in the theatricality and the applause, um, it functions. Yeah. So doing it, doing it in concert was, yeah, of course, it was enjoyable. It was great to let loose uh, and do more musical tempi. But it wasn't necessarily a totally fulfilling experience. Mm, mm. I, I find, uh, actually, I've listened to some Stravinsky ballets fairly recently uh, that were done in concert. And again, the conductor shall remain uh, anonymous. But I found the tempi, they were fast, they were exhilarating, but I, 
to me, it, it lost all weight and it lost all drama. It just became skated over. Um, so I, I love what you say about slow tempi, um, about certain things. I, I, I often try and find whether a slower tempo would work than just trying to be the quickest kid on the block. Um, yeah. What percentage of time do you, do you spend on the concert platform as opposed to in a darkened pit or a mirrored room with lots of ballet dancers? Well, these days, I, I suppose I spend about 80% of the time in, in, the, in, the, in the ballet pit because what's happened laterally is I've picked up more ballet work abroad, um, and in particular with the National Ballet of Japan. Yeah. Um, so, and ballet, unlike concert work, is um, it's extended periods, so you yeah. tend to be away a lot uh, to pick up the rehearsal process, and then also, of course, there are multiple performances. So, um, so yeah, I mean, that's, that's, it's a fascinating, it's a fascinating um, way of working to go and conduct basically the same th pieces with different companies and in different productions. Um, there are different traditions, as you can well expect yeah. around the world, but essentially the same thing always applies. And I think Russia is an exception where they expect the musicians to follow the dancers or to certainly give the dancers an awful lot of leeway for playing around with the music. But taking Russia out of the equation, if we could, um, everywhere else, certainly what I've been to, it expects the conductor to lead. And um, yeah, it can be fun. I had to do, I had to do Coppelia, which I've done an awful lot in one particular production uh, for a very different uh, production in Japan. And it almost felt like I was learning a new piece, totally, <laughs> because the tempi were radically different, and that mm. it's very unusual for ballet. Um, so we we do Sir Peter Wright's version, which is very traditional at BRP. But this was Roland Petit, which is a very sort of very almost like Euro trash um, <laughs> version. You know, it's it's a bit kitsch. It's it's fun, mm. but it is a very very different um, concept. So. Um, it was almost as if the music, um, I was discovering it for the first time because I had to rethink it from an interpretive point of view as well. So that can be a challenge too. Hmm. So, but, you know, it, I think all aspects of this, 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 I hate the term ballet conductor. Like I hate the term opera conductor. I hate the yeah. term choral conductor because we're all doing the same job. Yeah. You, you, you can't conduct Romeo and Juliet Prokofiev and be a bad conductor. It's just simply not possible. The orchestra would not tolerate it. The audience wouldn't tolerate it. It would be a disaster. So, you know, going back to the concert platform is always a, is wonderful as well. I mean, I, I really, you know, it's a very different, it's a, it's a different experience. It's less theatrical, but it's, um, it's equally exhilarating. And, um, so, yeah, I, I, I miss it doing uh, in some ways. Um, I tend not to do much opera these days, which, which I having started as a singer is something I, I really miss mm. more than actual concert work. It would be an opportunity to do more opera um, simply because of the quality of the repertoire, which as you know, is just in some ways second to none. Yeah, uh, I agree with you. Anybody who can conduct Prokofiev, of Romeo and Juliet, Petrushka, Firebird, uh, Rite of Spring, any of those Stravinsky ballets, even the smaller ones, if you can conduct those, you're a proper conductor. Uh, end of argument. Um, whether you're, you're, you know, you're directing dancers or you're on a concert stage, absolutely true.
at some point, uh, you're learning new scores. And I'm coming to the question that I ask every conductor. When you come to learn a new score, do you sit at your desk and use your inner ear? Do you start from the outside and work your way in? Do you go from big to small? And are you a scribbler? Are you a user of red, blue and black or any other coloured pens and pencils? Or are you one of these lucky people who commit it all basically straight into your brain and don't write anything in your scores? How do you prepare your scores, Paul? Well, I always feel that scores um, have to become your friend. Mm. Um, and if we have the luxury of a lot of time, they can become a close friend, which is the ideal. Yeah. Let's face it. And particularly ones that we come back to time and time again. Um, if, we, if it's something new, which is your first question, um, as we were saying earlier, uh, especially in the theater, we have tracks a lot. So having a track is a very useful uh, first step, you know, mm. to actually go through it with a track. I'm a great um, mistake finder. That's uh, almost to um, almost to an autistic degree, I'm afraid. Um, I, I, I like working with the composer in the early stage to sort of really clean up the errors before I actually put um, before I put pen to paper really on the score. Mm. So um, I, I like receiving new scores in dribs and drabs rather than um, the finished article simply because I like to, to, to clean it up and discuss any impracticalities and so on with the composer. Um, I'm not an advocate of the colored pencils. Um, <laughs> I'm not a, a red, red and blue. I'm a, simply a 2B pencil. Um, uh, like a lot of conductors, I like to, to mark the phrases in, yeah. uh, the, bar, the bar phrases uh, and, and of course the instrument cues. But um, I tend not to overmark. Um, I do mark, there are distinct markings in there, but they're not millions of them. And um, I like just the, the look of the pure pencil. Um, so I, I find myself, the, the, the colored pencil is very distracting. Um, occasionally, if I haven't got enough time and the music is very complex, I will use a red pencil mm. um, just to highlight one or two things, but that's kind of pretty rare for me. So. But it's really, as I said earlier, just trying to make that series of random dots your friend and in some ways your best friend for that time period and really just coming back day after day and just assimilating. I, I like to spend a lot of time um, just in, in, in silence with, um, with the music. I do use the keyboard. I've got one here next to me. I'm mm. not a great pianist, but I do use it. Um, and... Uh, you know, if, if, it's, if, if you have the luxury of doing something like a Brahms symphony, well, it's wonderful at the end of the rehearsal, of the study process to listen to a lot of really great people, different versions, not just one, just to mm. really, you know, it's not in any sense to copy, but just to sort of maybe glean mm. nuggets or um, <laughs> just, to see, just to see and hear what, what people have done and if, if everyone's been radical and so on, or, or just really... It's, it's always fascinating. There are so many great musicians and so many great recordings of these classics. We can always learn every day from these. So yeah, that's kind of my approach. Uh, I can't see it changing really from the, for the time being anyway. <laughs> well, I think the, the point of that question over 80 odd episodes is that everybody has their own way. Uh, as I said, as I sort of intimated in, the, in when I read you the question out is that there are some people who write nothing 
others like me who use red, blue, and black, and and uh, and everybody, everything in between. Some people who yeah. don't even use their own scores; they use somebody else's and give them back, and, and don't even have their own scores. Which I, I personally couldn't. You know, they're as you said, they're my friends, and they're sitting behind me. You can see them, uh, and I, you know, I know that they're there, and I, I know I can use them any, and I know what's written in them. Um, but yeah, we all do it differently, and that's just fine. Is conducting still a bit of a mystery to you? Would you like to know more? Well, you can find out all sorts of secrets, tips, opinions and much more on my Patreon page. You can hear interviews with musicians, composers, soloists and managers and hear their thoughts on conducting. You can read my diaries when I go on guest conducting trips, such as next week when I conduct in Germany. You can take part in group meetings with other like-minded conducting fans. You can read articles on conducting and conductors, and you can even have conducting lessons from myself. All of this is available at patreon.com forward slash a mic on the podium. And from just £5 a month, which is less than a pint of beer in most cities across the planet, you can gain access to this ever-growing resource on conductors and conducting. Details and links to the page are in the show notes attached to this episode. Now, the all-important 10 questions with my guest, Paul Murphy. Paul, it's 10 questions time. And as ever, I start with what sound or noise do you love and what sound or noise do you hate? Right. Well, um, the sound that I really love is the sound of the sea and particularly the sound of the waves lapping on the shore. Mm. I've never tired of that. I mean, fortunately, growing up in, in, in Derry, stroke London Derry, mm. or as a local journalist used to call it, stroke city in Northern <laughs> Ireland, um, I lived very close to the border with Donegal. So we regularly went um, to Lisfannan or Bunkrana on a Sunday afternoon. And I, you know, when we were children, in the midst of all the, you know, in, you know, this trouble and um, war that was going around us, we took refuge in this. And I, I've never, that was a very early experience for me. And I, it's one that I've just, I absolutely, I find it so peaceful and, and reflective. So that mm. is probably my favorite sound. And the sound you hate? The sound I hate is anything that resembles a gunshot. Mm. And again, it could hark back to those uh, days in Northern Ireland. But even in the theatre, if we've got one coming up, um, and there's one in Nutcracker in Act One, yes, uh, in the battle, uh, and I literally put my finger in my ear every single show. Um, even the sound of um, the the plane touching down on the tarmac, that bump, mm. um, I can't actually. I find it very difficult to deal with that without putting my fingers in my ears so yeah gunshot type noises i'm not surprised at all you know, if you grew up during that time of history in northern ireland uh you would have probably have heard gun gunshots or bombs exploding at some point and i'm not surprised in the slightest yeah. if you had 24 hours free what would you spend it doing if i had 24 hours free i would spend my time reading Drinking red wine, um, having a lovely meal with a family, watching a great movie. Brilliant. Sounds like a very, very nice day. Who would be a favourite conductor or conductors of yesteryear? Well, I suppose we now have to include the great Bernard Heitink as one of yesteryear because he yeah. he's still with us. He has now stopped conducting. For me, he was the epitome 
of a conductor, mm. a man of great musical integrity, a man of, in some ways, great modesty, but also a steely, maybe stubbornness to get across what he wanted. But I have yet to encounter anyone live who could make that continuous flow of music, uh, regardless of what one thought of the interpretation or you know, the, and the amount of respect he engendered from the players is just a second to none. So he has always been on a pedestal for me. Um, Karian, mm. simply, you know, because there are so many great recordings. He, the, the thing about Karian is he's unlike anyone else. If you listen to a Karian recording, it, you know, it, it even sometimes difficult to follow it in the score because he does things with it that no one else does. It's never predictable. It's always got tremendous drive and energy, tremendous, um, I wouldn't even say it's overly precise, but it's tremendous commitment in the music. Um, I've always been a great fan. And then conversely, I suppose, for um, Fort Wengler, Fort Wengler for his freedom of music making, mm. uh, for the fact that, as you know, going back to the John Carew approach, everything sort of springs out of the composer's intentions. Um, the harmonic flow of the music, the ebb and flow of tempi. Um, Gunter Wandt, mm. simply because I love Bruckner, uh, one of my favorite composers, uh, and I just, uh, he's the great Bruckner conductor for me. So, Abado, Abado for everything, really, for mm. his huge repertoire, for his, for his wonderful musicality, for his great, his great excitement, his great precision, um, his great efficiency, uh, wonderful style as a conductor as well, great charisma persona. So yeah, I suppose they would be my my top my top conductors of yesteryear. There's some cracking names there. Uh, going back yeah. to Heitink, in, uh, in you know uh, somebody who grew up and he was still very much conducting uh, when I was playing. Um, and you know you get to meet people who from the London scene because he never conducted in Birmingham. But I've never heard a musician say a bad word about him, which is very, very, very rare. Um, yeah. Even some of those names you've just mentioned, you know, Carian and um, Abado. I know people who played for them, and I know people who, who, who have got bad words to say about them. And maybe, you know, something they said or did in rehearsals, whatever. But Hightink, never, ever, never, ever, ever. People seem to just love playing for him. Which I wonder, as a character of any of your favourite current conductors, the question that gets more chuntering from the people I interview than any other question. <laughs> well, um, very recently I've become a convert or, or, or a big fan of Kirill Petrenko. Mm. Um, I subscribe to the Digital Concert Hall, and um, he's um, a very spontaneous musician. Uh, tremendously um, exciting, um, very fresh interpretations of particularly Tchaikovsky, the things mm. I've heard. Um, and it's wonderful to see that the, that the orchestra have gone for, in some ways, the antithesis of Simon, which is, um, I suppose, to some degree was inevitable mm. um, for a change. But um, I, I, I admire and like his work enormously. Gergiev is someone who divides opinions in the music world, but I, I am a big fan of him when he's on song. Mm. Um, to me, he's almost like a jazzer. Um, the music is 
almost being composed on the spot with his conducting. He takes enormous risks, not all of which come off, mm. I have to say, as we all know. But um, one of the best concerts I've ever been to in my life was actually in Symphony Hall with him and the Mariinsky when they did the Golden Cockerel Suite, the Coffee of Second Piano Concerto and the Rachmaninoff Symphonic Dances. And it was just an, an evening of pure, unadulterated pleasure and excitement. So, yeah. I mean, he's uh, he's an enigma. He's a uh, you know his his style of conducting, his technique, if you like, is is you know baffling. At times. <laughs> what a wonderful word! Uh, it is uh, baffling. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I have actually witnessed him when he laying the beat down as well. So he, he clearly can when when required, but decides often not to do it. But yeah, I, I like him. I like him enormously. And, and there are so many good conductors around now. I mean, I think those two, um, I, I like Gustavo. I, I think he's he's genuine, he's sincere, he's uh, he's got a great brain. Um, um, I like Simon, obviously, who could, which British conductor could not admire what that man has achieved. I mean, it is quite mm. simply phenomenal. Uh, and he's still fresh. He's still finding new things and, and new, a new drive. His drive is phenomenal. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there are, there are, there are so many good conductors now. It's a great period to be around as a conductor. I mean, and of course the, the advent now of so many talented women conductors as well, which is also tremendously exciting. So, um, but yeah, so those would be my, my, my sort of top three, if you like. What is the hardest work you've ever conducted? Um, I did think long and hard about that question because actually it's a very difficult question to answer because hard is a very, um, vague in some ways word it's but i think the, the the piece i find the most challenging is beethoven's ninth symphony mm. um because for me practically every section in every movement and almost every bar is fraught with difficulty and poses a question questions of pace questions of phrasing question of dynamic questions of balance and then of course you have to have the overarching interpretation mm. um I've only done it twice and after both performances came away thinking, well, maybe next time I might get a little bit closer. Uh, I done the other symphonies, uh, you know, they're all, none of them are easy, but the ninth, I just find for me uh, a tremendously difficult work. Mm. And I suppose it doesn't help that there are so many great readings that have already been laid down, but, um, I, I, I haven't said it's difficult. It's a positive difficulty, if such a phrase exists. I, I, I would love to have the opportunity of doing it again and again, just to maybe just sort of inch my way forward and getting it something more satisfying uh, reading. So yeah, that would be the piece for me. Despite all the contemporary scores that one has to do from time to time, I think that's the one where I felt most dissatisfied with myself at the end. It's the one Beethoven symphony I've yet to conduct. Um, for simple reasons that it's never come up, um, uh, never been offered the opportunity. I'd love to do it, if only to say I've done all nine symphonies. But because, it, you know, I've been conducting now since, properly since about 2002, 
you know, it's 19 yeah. years of conducting and that's been sitting there waiting to be conducted all that time. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to do it. But I understand why you would say it's hard because, you know, every time I look at the score, you think, oh, that's tricky. What do you do there? How do you do that? So, yeah, I totally understand. When traveling abroad to conduct, what item could you not leave home without? Well, that's an easy one. A box of English tea bags. <laughs> English or, breakfast tea or Earl Grey? English, or? English breakfast tea. Mm. Simply, you can't get it anywhere. And um, tea abroad is just not the same. And I, I'm, I'm a big coffee fan. I, I love real coffee, but you can get real coffee virtually anywhere. Um, but uh, a cup of morning tea is kind of impossible unless you're here. So, um, yeah, I always bring a box. And that's my, that's my, my desert island luxury. What is the one thing you would change about being a conductor? Well, I think I'd like to change, rather than being a, a, a conductor myself, conductors in general, I would love to change the way we dress and the way we approach the audience. I think dumbing down is, is also a mistake. Uh, to be too casual about what we do is, is, is also wrong. But I think um, that we are 19th century image has surely got to change. I mean, I'm not, a, um, I would love to, I would love to get rid of the tails. Um, I, I think we should be in smart suits. I think there's an opportunity for the community for young up and coming fashion designers to design us a, an outfit that could be the same as the orchestras perhaps. Um, and I think we should address the orchestra more, the, the, the audience more uh, rather than being a sterile uh, and so slightly more theatrical experience. Mm. So that we, so we, they get more for their money. Um, so uh, I suppose I'm talking initially of concert giving rather than um, th theater, because in theater you have the visuals anyway. So, yeah, I think we should be perhaps a little bit less austere and a bit more human. Well, and um, one of the first concerts I did at Symphony Hall with an audience. Um, it, was uh, Malcolm Arnold Symphony Number no. Five, and because of COVID regulations and people having to move on and off the stage, I was asked to speak to the audience about it. I feel that by doing that, they got much more of a sense of what the music was about because I could tell them what it was about and my thoughts on what it was about. And I think it's something I'm going to be doing more often in the future. And yeah. I've decided also mainly because whenever I wore tails, I looked like an unmade bed, that um, <laughs> I, I'm going to ditch tails and I'm just going to wear a smart suit and a black shirt. And, you know, that's just going to be me. Uh, if As long as I'm comfortable and not self-conscious about looking you know, a mess, well, then that's just it. So more of us Excellent. should do it. Excellent. Number nine, what profession other than your own would you like to attempt or like to have had a chance at going at? Well, when I was a teenager, I always thought I'd be a teacher and teach French. That was my first ambition in life. Um, I've got a great deal of respect for teachers. Um, I don't think I could be a teacher now. I haven't got the patience. <laughs> um, I've always fancied being a spy, <laughs> if I'm honest. Mm. Yes, I, 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 to some degree, I've always felt that way. I'm sure it's not glamorous at all. I'm sure it's fraught with danger and it's probably quite dull at times, but yeah. To have a go of being a spy for a day would be something I would, before I shuffle off, I'd love to have a go at. <laughs> Brilliant answer. And you're the first person who's wanted to be a spy. That's great. <laughs> That's why I love these same questions. I get a lot of rep um, duplicate answers, but I get an awful lot of surprising ones. And that's brilliant. <laughs>
And finally, if the world were to end tonight, what would be your choice of final meal and drink? Well, again, that's quite an easy one for me. I'm, I'm, I'm very fortunate that my wife is a very good cook. And um, my favourite meal uh, of hers is homemade steak and kidney pudding with mm. onion gravy and peas. Mm. That's simple. Of course, accompanied by a beautiful glass of red wine. But yes, that's the meal for me. Oh. Definitely. <laughs> steak and kidney pudding as opposed to pie for those who exactly. don't know yes um with a suet um suet pastry and oh yes oh that's wonderful um yeah you know, you've got me salivating paul you really have it's a, something i'm rarely allowed to have here I'm, i might go down and suggest we go out and buy one. Oh, wonderful choice um, it's been wonderful and more importantly it's been fascinating chatting to you paul i've really enjoyed the last hour or so and found out so much new and learned so many new things and let's hope very soon we can sit down over a beer and carry on chatting about all manner of what, what have you. Um, thank you very much. Thank you, Mike. It's been a great pleasure talking to you. A Mic on the Podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal with music by Ben Dawson. Next time, I chat with an Italian conductor who's equally at home on the concert stage as he is in the Opera House. He's held title positions in Italy, France and Germany, and in July this year, he started as the music director of the Lyric Opera in Chicago. But until then, bye-bye. <laughs>